There we go. That's better. So I guess by accident of, of naming, I'm going last. I've, I'm not going to talk about what's, uh, what's in the program either. For the last, uh, I guess, year and a half, I've been thinking about the relationship of security and power, uh, mostly in, in the form of surveillance, but also censorship and, and propaganda. And in the, uh, in the middle of that, uh, Edward Snowden appeared, probably, I think, a year ago yesterday or the day, a couple days ago. And I've been thinking a lot about surveillance and the NSA, and I want to talk about both of those things and, and how they're related. Uh, I, can give, I give hour-long talks on Snowden and what to do about it. The, the two aspects of the story that I think are very underreported, uh, one are, are the correlations. The stories tend to focus on the data collection, that uh, collection of uh, images, collection of Facebook data, of email friends lists, very little of uh, location data from cell phones, very little is talked about what's, what is done with it. And I think that really hurts the debate about controls because debates tend to happen about streams of input. And really where the, the work is, where the harms are, are the streams of input coming together. And so we can talk about surveillance drones but it's really surveillance drones plus camera resolution plus face recognition. And we could talk about location data, but it's location data of everybody together plus uh, contacts from phones and emails used to figure out who's associated with who. And, and that, those stories are, are, are much less talked about. The one exception was a Washington Post story about location data. I'll give you one example. Uh, when you have everyone's location data, you can do things like look for people who are near each other. Right? You can figure out who is in this room. Government of Ukraine did this, sending an SMS to everybody who appeared at a government protest saying, hi, we know you at an anti-government protest. <laughs> uh, NSA does that. One of the things they will do with it, very clever, is they know the phone numbers of US agents overseas. They'll look for phones that are tracking them. They'll look for tails. I mean, really clever use of that. Uh, the other thing that's not talked about much is the corporate involvement. That a lot of this surveillance piggybacks on existing corporate capabilities. Ross just said that. And, and it, it means that we are accepting things we would never accept otherwise. If the government said, you must all carry your surveillance device 24-7, we would rebel, yet we pick up our cell phones every morning. Right, the government says, every time you make a new friend, you must inform the police. We would never do it, but we inform Facebook. Right, and this corporate capability, that basically that surveillance is the business model of the internet, has enabled massive government surveillance. In some countries, it's even more aligned than the US. You go to places like China, you go to places like Syria, where corporate surveillance is used to arrest people routinely. And also what's changed, and uh, you know, this, this has come out in several places, is that the world's changed really in the past two decades, and it's changed in two dimensions. First, the threat has changed. Traditional NSA activity is government-on-government -government espionage. Right? The, the US, the NSA surveilling Angela Merkel's cell phone. Right? That's the normal way of doing things, spying on foreign leaders. What changed pretty much at the terrorist attacks on 9-11 is that the threat became anyone, anywhere. It became populations. So what was government on government espionage 
became government on population surveillance. And that's where you start seeing all these very broad, let's not just spy on Angela Merkel's cell phone, let's spy on the other 80 million Germans and everybody else. And that's where you see some of these network effects that Ross talked about. The other thing that changed is the target changed. Before the internet, it was very easy to spy on their stuff and leave our stuff alone. But Soviet communications were on Soviet networks, and they were different. And you could tap a Soviet undersea cable. You could eavesdrop on a Soviet satellite or a Soviet microwave station. And that fundamentally had nothing to do with what happened in the US. The internet changed that. Right? The same communications links that run the communications between the Russian embassy here in, in London and Moscow run all of our phone calls back home. And, and no longer can you just attack theirs, you have to attack everything. It's the same vulnerabilities you exploit in the Chinese networks are the, are the vulnerabilities you have to leave open in your networks. We're all using uh, Microsoft Windows, TCP IP, well, we're all using Facebook, we're all using Word, we're all using the same stuff. And this just sets up a very fundamental choice, these two things. And it's a choice not between security and privacy, but between security and surveillance. That when we are all in one infrastructure, when we are all together populations, the government, the eavesdroppers, sort of have to decide, do we build a world where anyone can perform surveillance, or do we build a world where nobody can? Which is more important? Security of everybody, which includes security of the bad guys, or vulnerabilities for everybody, which includes vulnerabilities of the good guys? Lots of places this plays out. And I think this is a distinction that politically we haven't fully internalized. That there really is no way to spy on the Chinese without letting them spy on us. You know, for example, it's very much believed as a zero-sum game, but that doesn't work anymore. I talk a lot about solutions to this in different audiences. I'll, I'll emphasize different things. There's a lot of tech solutions. Different groups are, are working on this. Uh, the important thing to know, I think we've learned this from all of the documents from the NSA, is that despite having a larger intelligence budget than everybody else in the world combined, they are not made of magic. I think this is the biggest surprise. I expected more magic. But in fact, they are constrained by the same laws of economics, of physics, of mathematics as everybody else. And when you look at tech solutions, you try to leverage those laws. Right? We've built a world where surveillance is so easy that it's easier to eavesdrop on everybody than to target. Right? Changing that equation changes the world dramatically. Right? It forces the targeted surveillance against you know, the, the things we might want without getting the ancillary surveilling on everybody. Right? You talked about that, that, that if I'm gonna build capabilities to aid my troops in Afghanistan, one of the things we did was where we eavesdrop on every telephone call in Afghanistan. We do that. Once you build that technology, it's easy to run it against Bermuda and other countries, and, and we don't know how many different countries at this point. Right? The bulk is easy. 
once you develop the tools. So tech, technology does a lot of things. It's a lot of things it doesn't do. Right? This is the story about metadata, that a lot of data is needed to make the systems work. And it can be very hard to secure that. Right? Your phone has to know you're here, otherwise it can't ring. Right? We can't obscure that. So primarily, this is a political problem. And solutions are primary polit primarily political. The, uh, the general shape of them, I think we know. Right? Transparency, oversight, accountability. I can, I can say those three words. Uh, the devil is in the details, and there are a lot of details. But that is basically how we make it work. The problem is, and I'm going to end with this, is that nothing changes unless we can change the fundamental social issues. Right? And this is, this is the human behavior part. That, that the two things driving global surveillance are fear and convenience. Right? Fear on the government side and convenience on the commercial side. Right? We like it that Google has all of our email. Right? We think it's okay that Google knows what kind of porn all of, all of us like. I think that's a bit creepy, but you know, we kind of accept that because it's convenient. Right? On the government side, it's fear. Uh, uh, law professor at Harvard, Jack Goldsmith, made a really, I mean, a very perceptive point saying, look, if you demand more transparency out of the US Congress today, what you will get is a more permissive NSA. Because as long as people are scared, as long as people believe that the security values will make, will make them safer, they're going to give more power to these groups. And you're not going to get meaningful reform unless we deal with these two fundamental social issues. And I'll stop with that. <laughs>